people think of traction as a mechanical system that all works together and fits together. And so therefore, when you get to the end of the book, you think two things, three things, probably. Number one, I have to do it. Number two, I am definitely a visionary, not an integrator. And number three, I'm guilty relative to the percentage of all this that I've implemented. And so my philosophy is really just take one thing and do it. Your business will be better in the morning. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right, so here's the idea today. Today's guest dropped by to share five operational principles or sort of small projects or ideas that you could implement in your business tonight, have a better business in the morning. That's a concept. A lot of these systems, they tend to talk about interrelation, interrelationability. They have a lot of things that you seemingly need to all weave together. And that's never really been my personal experience that like, I believe with especially seven and eight figure businesses, we're talking about small businesses here. You can take one operational idea, dunk it into your business, and bam, you're better already. And I think that's empowering and it's simple. That's the concept of today's episode. Hopefully you walk with something amazing. Speaking of something amazing, just some business update here. This book, The Pumpkin Plan by Mike Michalowicz. I think Michalowicz is how you say his name. I've sent you an email, Mike. Drop by the pod at some point. Someone that knows Mike, have him come by the pod. One of the things I do in the business, I call it Friday Slides. So we have this team call and, you know, there's certain slides and maybe one day I'll do it on the pod. But, you know, every Friday morning, the whole team gets together and I do the slides. Well, this past Friday, I asked the team to do the slides. So shout out to Krista and Lena gave a wonderful presentation about our own personal pumpkin plan. And this is a growth strategy that asks you to focus in on your very best clients rather than maybe getting more clients. And it's a really interesting book and something I've been thinking a lot about. So something to sort of presage stuff coming down the pike here at the pod. We'll be doing some pumpkining. Another update, this will be the last pod for some time stateside. I'm getting on a plane here in just a few minutes to go to Gay Perry. So next week's podcast will be coming to you directly from the City of Lights. Looking forward to that, meeting a lot of you on the ground, and hopefully a lot of really cool stories from the road coming up this summer. Many of you know I've been obsessed with the idea of operational excellence. The past year, I've been reading everything I can get my hands on, traction, scaling up, Rockefeller habits, ultimate sales machine, you name it, I've been going back to the library. But even more importantly to me is like the practical implementation. So through this new community we did, through DC Scale, all these sorts of scale training stuff, working with coaches, working with professional advisors. The most interesting part to me has been seeing how practitioners implement this stuff and like what it looks like in the real world because the theories are cool. I love that stuff. But to me, it's kind of interesting, the collision between theory and reality. And that's kind of the concept of today's guest also loves the theory, but has been putting it to work in his business. And I'll ask him here to introduce his name and and what it is that he does. John Ainsworth. I run data-driven marketing. And what we do is we help info product and online course creators to quintuple their revenue 
through email marketing and funnels, and they only pay us based on the increase in revenue. So now John wrote this amazing post in the DC or forum, and it really broke down and simplified what for so many of us is this big, large, complicated thing like, I don't know, how do I install traction in my business or whatever? I'm 15% traction. I'm worried. How do I get the rest of the 85? And I'm just like, hey, it's just one or two things. And uh, John's really good at simplifying and communicating this stuff. And before we jumped into the five operational challenges, we, we talked about a couple topics. One is finding a repeating marketing channel. I'm not in love, actually, with the kind of, quote, business exercises out there for this. If you know of one, could you email it to me, Dan at Tropical MBA? It's one of the biggest problems that this audience faces is finding a repeating marketing channel that doesn't mean getting on a plane or going and relying on referrals and traveling and shaking hands and stuff and going to events. So, And I actually believe this problem could be getting harder because a lot of the marketing channels that so many of us sort of build our businesses on are getting more complicated, competitive, or breaking down. So I think it's a really pressing question. We'll be talking about a lot more on the show coming up. And the second topic is this idea of sort of solving who problems versus what problems. So in the case of repeating marketing channels, maybe, you know, hiring a person, an advisor who's already nailed a channel at a previous company versus hiring a marketing person who's going to run tests on a bunch of different channels and hoping to get a positive outcome. So enough setup. We're going to roll the episode here and I'll swoop back in at the end. My pet philosophy with traction is to try to get rid of traction guilt. People think of traction as a mechanical system that all works together and fits together. And so therefore, when you get to the end of the book, you think two things, three things, probably. Number one, I have to do it. Number two, I am definitely a visionary, not an integrator. And number three, I'm guilty relative to the percentage of all this that I've implemented. And so my philosophy is really just take one thing and do it. Your business will be better in the morning. And what I'd like you, since you've kind of done it all, I was wondering if you could help us identify what those top five things would be from an ROI perspective. And hopefully that will get more people to think about systems in their business. Yeah. I mean, if it's all right, can I talk first about how we've implemented it, like the process we use for actually putting this stuff into place? Yeah, absolutely. The other thing, you know, at the top, I, I want to like kind of identify like why we had you on the show. I mean, one of the things that really jumped out to me was this statement written by you. I'll quote you. What the system has enabled me to do is set everything to run based on systems and processes when I'm not around. And that includes not just the business running, but improving. I took off most of last year and we still grew 30% with the business running better than it ever had before. And yeah, it's like I think everybody's like raising their hand and saying, <laughs> so talk us to the story of, of how you encountered Traction first and how things unfolded from there. Yeah, so I read it probably about seven years ago. And immediately, as soon as I'd read it, I was like, this is so obvious that this is right, that this would work, that this would make a business run really smoothly. And this is clearly an enormous amount of work. And somehow it kind of fitted in my head. I'm like, I've come across stuff like this before. I don't even know if I could explain quite where, but it just fitted for me. And I was like, cool, I will start working on that. And I feel no guilt, shame, discomfort about the fact that we don't have most of it in place. I think I got from some DC and I go through every four months. Let's give some examples of what those questions are. Everyone is in the right seat. 
they get it and they want to have the capacity to do their jobs well. And you rank that on like a one to five level. Yeah. Everyone has quarterly projects, say one to seven quarterly projects and is focused on them. And then you rank that to a one to five, those sorts of things. Yeah, and they're based under the six different areas that the book covers. And it's just like, if you answer five on all of them, it means you've got everything running perfectly. And so what I did is I took the tests and I got 23 out of 100. And he said, that's normal. He said 20 to 30 is normal. And I was like, all right, cool, great. So that's my starting point. And so every four months, what I do is I go through and I take it. And whatever scores the lowest, I'll choose one or maybe two of the things that score the lowest. There was loads of ones, obviously, to start with. And... I will work on that for a few months. I won't like, that's not like a massive project, but I'm like, okay, gradually I'll get that thing. And then the business runs a tiny bit better. And then I do it on the next four months later, I'll do it again and I'll choose another thing and I'll choose one or two things and improve it. And so now we're up to 92 out of 100, but it wasn't something, I didn't make this a giant project to implement it. I was like, okay, now we'll start doing some SOPs and we'll start creating some of those. And now we're going to make a weekly scorecard in the business, you know, and it's like, but it'll suck. And then next, you know, in probably in a year's time, we'll make it a bit better or what have you. So that's been the process for us. And it's, we're still working on it. I went through and took it again. And there's two areas that we've got a three out of five in. We've got a proven process for doing business with our customers. It's been named and visually illustrated and all of our salespeople use it. Now we've got a proven process. It hadn't been named. It hadn't been visually illustrated and all of our salespeople didn't use it. So I was like, all right, we're kind of halfway there on that one. I'm like, yeah, good idea yeah, we should do that. But it's not like, not like you can't run a business without a visually illustrated proven process. You know, it's useful, but it's not essential. So that's kind of been the process for us um, going through and putting it into place. How do you think your business would be different if you hadn't done any of this? Because there is this kind of idea like, you know, who cares about organizing the desk so long as the revenue is coming in and the profits drop yeah. into the bottom line, let's just go out and freaking slay revenue and who cares? it would probably by now be bigger and it would probably be much more stressful because I've seen people do it, right? I've seen, and I, I've wished over the last five years that I was the kind of person who didn't care about the fact that everything was messy and there was fires all over the place because I've seen how you can use that to grow a business faster. But now that I'm here, I see those people and I talk to them. I'm like, your life sounds like hell. <laughs> and I'm like, thank God I was willing to go this slowly. Like it's been five years building the business up to like about a million in revenue. And I'm like, I've seen people do that in like two or three. And it's like, but tons of stuff depends on them because they haven't created the processes. Everything doesn't run smoothly. It doesn't improve. if They're not around. In fact, stuff just goes wrong all the time. And I was chatting with someone the other day and he read through the post and he, and he messaged me. He said, but I like fighting fires. It's fun. It makes me feel important. You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, I hate fighting fires. I cannot stand it at all. I want everything to run smoothly. But the downside of that is I would often make processes for stuff before it was proven. You know, you're better off a lot of times. Run something a bunch of times, figure out, ah, oh, no, that was bullshit. Get rid of that. Right, run the next version, run the next version. And eventually you make a process. Whereas I'll go in and I'll make the process straight away. And it's not perfect. But now that I'm here, it's just like, everything's so smooth. Like, it's so good. Yeah. I think, you know, the two insights there. The first is like, a lot of this is personality based. Not only do a lot of founders like to feel important, they like conflict. A lot of founders just like conflict or they like the intensity, the oppositional nature, just that feeling of like, hey, I'm on my phone at the amusement park with my kids barking at somebody. 
that mm. somehow is like animating to a class of, of founders, which oftentimes is why they became founders in the first place. So I think a lot of it can be just personality driven. Like if you're an organized person, you know, mm. if you like to plan, like maybe you kind of lean more towards... I do think it's interesting that like these kind of operational stuff, it's not like the core driver of the business necessarily at a smaller level. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, you shouldn't bother to start to implement this until you get to like, I don't know, half a million, maybe a million in revenue. It depends on your kind of business type, right? As to whether you're e-com or SaaS or agency or whatever. But like something at the point where you're like, you've got product market fit, you've probably even got a sales process where you've got all the stuff working and then you implement this, it's going to really help you to move forwards. Well, that's kind of why I talked to you because I know like you have like the theoretical and practical stuff and then you've talked to a bunch of founders in like different states of this. And kind of what I wanted to challenge you to do for the pod here today is to kind of indicate, you know, if people share that same opinion, like, oh man, this is a lot to do. Could you like help us elementize it and identify the few processes that you would start with as kind of like your gateway processes? And then you can, as you said, like every four months, you can like add a few things down the pike. So what wouldn't be premature optimization is another, like what things are critical even at the half a million dollar level? All right, let's start off with your top one. Yeah, so the top one for me is daily huddle. What is a daily huddle? A daily huddle is 15-minute call, whole team comes together, and everybody shares what's the top three things that they're going to work on today. Did they get done the top three things from yesterday? And what's any issues they've got? It's so fast. You have, we have a spreadsheet for it. It has everybody's names down the side. It has the date across the top, and then space for each person to put in three things. It's 15 minutes long? It's five a lot of the time. Like, it's so easy. Now, John, I got to cut you off. There is a rumor that this process was not included in the book Traction because it's <laughs> not appealing to small business founders. Yeah, I remember I was talking to a dc about this. And I was like, you really should do this. And he's like, yeah, I know. I'm not going to, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, so, so this, for example, uh, I think this kind of setup between Traction and Scaling Up is hugely interesting. These are very influential philosophies. When I go through, for example, the test where I go one to five, that is a direct parallel to the Rockefeller habits test and scaling up. And so a lot of these were like direct kind of facsimiles of what's happening in scaling up, but simplified for the small business. And when Gino came across this daily huddle thing, I think he said, mm, I don't think people like that that much. We're just going to leave that one out. Yeah, and I'd not read scaling. I've not still not read scaling up, but I had heard about this from friends who were doing agile project management, which is like a software project management style. And I thought, oh, I'll try that. And I implemented it, and it worked great. For the first time, it really gave me an insight into like what is it that everybody in the team is actually doing each day. What are they think is the top thing? Secondly, it forced everybody to make sure that whatever they chose as the top thing actually got done, because you have no idea how embarrassing it is to like three days in a row not have done the top three things that you said you were going to do the day before. And nobody wants that embarrassment on day four. They're like, all right, okay, I'm going to make sure I get those top three things done. So it forces everybody to prioritize through social pressure. It's not presented that way, but that happens. And then it gives everybody a chance to sort any issues really quickly on those, those days as well. Also, it gives us a chance to all take the piss out of each other in the team, which mm. we really like doing. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what would you imagine like a before and after vision of a company before daily huddles and after daily huddles? So before you're like, well, what is it that everybody's actually working on? Why is these things that I thought we were going to make progress on not really getting done? People in the team are frustrated because they don't have, they don't feel like they can ask for input or support on certain things. And nobody quite knows what their priority is. And they're just working away on whatever stuff comes in, maybe through Slack, maybe through email, something like that. And afterwards, everybody's very clear on the priorities. The priorities are getting done every single day. You can see what they are. And if they have the wrong priorities, you can address that and make sure that everything is in line with your overall goals. And people feel very comfortable about getting support and solving the issues that come up very quickly instead of waiting three days until they have a meeting with, with someone. Oh, that's the embarrassing question. One of the interesting things about this audience is although the vast majority of us own or founded our businesses, not all of us regularly operate them. And so how do you deal with that issue? Do you have three things that you commit to to the team? What happens if you're on you know, a sabbatical or extended break? Or for a lot of our listeners, I think they're maybe just not that serious about the day-to-day operation. They might be like making sales and stuff like that, but just kind of like let that filter down through the rest of the delivery team and stuff. So how do you, what, how do you think through those kinds of things? So two parts to that. One, you don't have to be on these calls necessarily. Just because mm-hmm. they're running doesn't mean you have to be involved in them. Somebody needs to be running them, but it doesn't necessarily have to be you. And secondly, you can just tell the team that like, okay, well, I'm only involved in this business 10 hours a week or, or whatever amount it is. That's how it works. You know, or you could choose not to, I suppose, but that's kind of the way I do it. So I take off a week a month and a day a week. And so it's just marked in the team in the daily huddle that I'm just not around those, those days. And that's how it is. That's how the business runs. It's simple. It's like you just own it. That's basically what I'm hearing. Yeah. Don't be nervous about it. Like, come on, you set this business up for a reason. Don't be embarrassed about it. <laughs> the other thing I'd like to underline is that uh, Vern Harnish is one of my favorite public speakers. And when he is asked this question, I am asking you, he says the same thing. And oh. he says it in a very similar manner. He says, there are so many founders that require, they want freedom. They want this, they want that. They really hesitate to do a daily huddle. And he's like, it is the easiest, biggest ROI in terms of process. And, uh, you know, there's all these objections about time zones or whatever. And he has like this perfect, like suave answers to everything, just like you, makes it sound simple. And personally, I've implemented this and it's not that bad. It's not that bad at all. In fact, it's pretty cool. Let's move on to the next one. So number one, uh, the daily stand-up huddles for the high ROI operational processes. How about number two? So this is one that I don't know if it's in either of those books. It's something that I've implemented recently. It was based on Chet Holmes. Uh, I got this one from. It's having office hours. He said he used to get all these people would come to him with just these questions here, there, everywhere. Or people don't come to you with questions and they do their best to try and implement something. And then they don't do it right. So what I've done is I implemented it's two days a week, two hours a day, office hours. And I expect the team to book time in there. If the hours are not getting booked, then I'm like, okay, well, why not? Because I know that we can move faster if you've got my input on things. And the person who uses them the most is my marketing manager, who is just, she's quite young, which is just so kick-ass. She's amazing. And she'll just see an area in the marketing that could be better. She'll plan in an hour with me. We'll go through it. We'll discuss it. I'll tell her, oh, you could make a change like this or this or this. 
because I've been in marketing a while. I know how it works, but I'm just not involved in the day-to-day details of what she's doing. So she asked me these questions. I tell her the answer. She implements it. The thing runs better. And it's beautiful. It's like my favorite time of the week, work-wise, because I get to dispense wisdom and feel clever. And then I don't have to do any of the actual work. And it makes the business run better. It's beautiful. I love that. That's so simple. Pat Holmes, what a legend. Yeah. Wrote The Ultimate Sales Machine, one of the best business books of all time. Yeah, I've gone through the course version of that, like, I don't know, five times. <laughs> I'm, really <laughs> glad, I'm really glad you mentioned that because uh, I, I haven't heard anybody ever really mention that. And it mm. seems so elegant and simple. We, a concept that's somewhat similar that I've been thinking a lot lately is the buddy system. Like, does everyone on your team have a buddy? Like someone that they mm. they work with? Like someone that they kind of... Like like this, me and you are looking at each other on video. Let's work on that sales letter, John. Or like, let's like bang out that product together. And you kind of sit there for a couple hours and you co-work or whatever. I think like having systems around like approximating what an in-person... Like what the in-person value was in an office for remote teams are are very valuable. And that feels like something that's approximating the knowledge exchange that you'd get in an office environment. It was really interesting. I, I haven't ever figured out about actually implementing this properly. But when I started this business, I used to be the one who was like doing all of the stuff, you know, write the emails, set up the funnels, et cetera. And I hired an assistant. I started training him. And I was very lucky because he's like way smarter than me, incredibly competent, very ambitious. Like he's been absolutely amazing. But we used to work together let's say, editing some emails where we would just be on a call together for three hours, but you'd only talk for like 25 minutes of it because mm-hmm. he'd be working and I'd be working on it. And then he'd ask me something and I'd explain it and be like, oh, okay, cool, I get it. And he'd go and work on it. Go, okay, can you check this now? And it was like sitting next to somebody in an office, but we, n- we don't do it anymore. I don't know if there's a place for it with me or if there's a place for it with team members, but it worked really well in terms of somehow managing to impart the knowledge faster, I think. I think too. So what I've been, the way I've been implementing this is I'm working on our, our H2 strategy plan and rolling out how that like filters down to people's individual scorecards. You know, each kind of product area has an owner, right? Identifying like who owns these outcomes. I'm like basically assigning them a buddy. Like this is your person that you work with this on to get to these things. I don't know. I I find it valuable. Even like uh, with Ian and I, like one of the things that happened, we started doing these like daily huddles and it was like me and Ian and everybody else. And then Ian and I stopped talking as much as we should. So then I have to like reschedule time for us to actually just talk. Yeah. And just like this, I think it sounds, what I like about it is it's not conceptually big things, but I think they do have big results. So uh, anyways, how about your third one, John? Third one for us is values. So this is something what? that I think it... <laughs> what? I thought you were out of the hippie business. What? <laughs> <laughs> I was chatting with somebody about this yesterday. And I was just like, I know it sounds all hippie and stuff, but it's... All right. Works. You got to read, read, read your values to us, John, and then let's analyze them. All right. Okay, cool. So our three main values that we focus on are effortless flow, honesty, and growth. That's like our, the top things that we work. Now, these change sometimes depending on what it is that we need to actually work on. 
So by effortless flow, I, the, the way I describe that sometimes to make it easier is excellence. Mm. But it's like, what we think of it internally, I still get off uh, Itamar about this. He's like, oh man, you've got to let that, you know, effortless flow is a little bit too, too hippie. So, but excellence <laughs> is the idea, right? We're trying to reach a level of excellence where people outside of the business don't even understand how it's possible that we did something that well. That's the level that we're trying to reach. Like it confuses people. Yeah. Mm. Like where that's, so that's the idea of what effortless flow kind of means, but like excellence is an easier way of thinking about it. It's a conceptually simple concept, but it is not the way that most people run their business, especially agencies. For a lot of people, the best way to make a lot of money running an agency is to run a B minus work, right? To just do something just good enough that people don't fire you and then crank in a lot of them and just get rubbish people doing it who could just about manage to make it work so you've got higher margins and you churn like anything, but whatever. Well, tell me how these three words meet the ground. Like how, how does it yeah. actually manifest in the business? So in a bunch of different ways. So we hire against it. So we're looking to hire someone who is doing excellent work. So we need to see that they have done that before. It's easy to say that in an interview, but we do test tasks as well. So we hired somebody and we said, we're looking at trying to go on podcasts that are talking to authority site owners. And we want you to find 20. This was our test task in our last round of hiring. And so the best people found 20 and then thought, yeah, but 20 is good. Maybe I could do more though. Maybe I could go find some more of these. And they went and found like 50 or 60 or 70. And then they thought, I remember one of them, she said to me, then I thought, well, wh what else? What is authority sites really? And they found that niche sites was kind of the same as authority sites. So then she found all of the podcasts that were also talking to niche sites. And then she's like, yeah, but maybe there's some other terms as well. So she found every other term that she could. And then she color coded them all based on what she thought were the highest priority ones to reach out to based on the, the size of their podcast when she found a tool that had, could help her to understand the podcast size. And it's like, okay, now we're talking. Like you're someone who's going to do so. You don't want to just do the job. You want to do this ridiculously well. But you would have hired that woman without that excellence written down on your values thing. So, right, I think. Yeah, but it yeah, so it was our value anyway, right? Yeah. Excellence was already our value, but clarifying it for ourselves allows it to not just be in my head. Mm. That's the point with a lot of this stuff is that I could spot that and be like, I want that person. I think they're really good. Maybe others would too. But by clarifying it and explaining it and spelling it out and talking about it regularly, it's really easy to do that at scale. So everybody in the team knows that excellence is the thing that we're focusing on. Every personal review that each person has every six weeks, we go through and the manager checks what's their level of excellence, one to 10. The person rates themselves what's their level of excellence, one to 10. If the numbers aren't very similar, then we're talking to the person about this is what it really means to be excellent. If someone's not reaching that standard, then we're talking to them about, you know what, you're not reaching that level. We need you to start looking for other work somewhere else, or let's at least kind of look at how we can get you to that level. And if not, then this is what's going to happen. So, so where this really meets the road is, and what I'm hearing you say is, in hiring, managing, and firing. Yeah. And externalizing yeah. your value set to, so ours are for the audience, entrepreneurial, accountable, truth-seeking, mindful, and clear communicator. And it's like, Interesting because everybody does rank themselves and then their manager ranks them and then you come to a meeting. And like you said, like that moment of disagreement can be really magical. It's like, wait a second, you think you're a clear communicator? 
because I don't have that impression of you. Like, let's dig in. Like, let's mm. truth seek. <laughs> yeah. And it really, yeah. really guides conversations in some really incredible ways. Yeah. Without that, what happens is you get frustrated because they're not doing the thing that you want them to do, but you didn't tell them very clearly what the thing you wanted them to do was. Yeah. It's very difficult for that to lead to success coming out of it, you know. But if everyone's clear, this is what the value is, this is what it means, this is what level I think you are, this is what level you think you are, there's a difference, let's discuss it. Okay, now we can actually get into something practical. Hey, if you like the show, just want to remind you, we have a website, tropicalmba.com. You can click through on your phone, check us out on the web, hit that subscribe button, and write the newsletter every week. There's a lot going on behind the scenes of the pod, and that's the best way to find out about upcoming events, both virtual, in-person, and much more. Check us out at tropicalmba.com and give us some feedback on this brand spanking new website. Because it's time for a spanking. We got daily huddle, we got office hours, we got values. Yeah. What's number four? Number four for me is having SOPs. It's not a new concept. It's something that's been talked about before, but it's just massive. So I'll give you an example. I used to do our sales and I had a process for it that I loosely followed because I thought I was too clever to actually follow the process exactly the way it was. What's that mean? You're a great, you're a great sales guy. You got on the phone, you close people. So why would I write down what questions I asked them or what information I was gathering? Yeah, I'd, I'd have this idea that would come to me in the moment. I'd be like, oh, I should say this. This is a good line. And I'd <laughs> say that line, you know, instead of following exactly what it said. So I started working with my marketing manager and she was taking over the sales. And, and so she just came on to begin with and just came on the calls. And I wasn't sure if it was going to work. I was like, I don't know if we can can do this. We didn't have enough sales calls to hire a full-time salesperson. So let's try it. So she came on and she'd ask really good questions. Why did you say this? Why did you say that? How, where does this fit? And so we started making everything that I was doing into a more robust process that was more precise, more exact. Like the big thing with SOPs is if you write down, if someone writes down what they think they do, it's not what they actually do. They're not the same thing. You have to like really work at them to make it actually fit with what it is that's really happening. So then eventually I started getting her to help me with them. And then that helped us make the process a bit better. And then she started doing, actually running the sales calls. And I'd been closing, I'd gradually improved my conversion rate on closing for over years. And I'd got from like 30% up to 44%. When she started running the calls instead of me, she followed the process exactly the way it was written, which it turns out was way better than what I would come up with off the top of my head. <laughs> you know, because it turns out I'm not as smart as I thought I was. And uh, she closed six months straight at 100% conversion rate by following the process exactly as it was laid out. Okay, so this really jumped out to me because you're obviously a charismatic guy, super knowledgeable. I know SOPs are the reason, but what is the knowledge that she as a less experienced salesperson inhabited that was in those documents that you didn't Yeah, so there was a script for exactly how you explain the offer. That was one crucial part of it. There was a um, process for exactly which questions you should ask and in which order. And I would sometimes jump around and then I'd forget and I'd miss something out instead of following it exactly where it was. And I, the process wasn't good enough that I could have followed it before I started working with her. But because I was good enough at doing it, I could never bring myself to really like exactly, precisely improve it. Her asking me the questions allowed me to help make the process better. And then she followed it. And she, when I first heard her explain the the offer exactly the way it was written down, it made me physically uncomfortable. 
because I was like, oh, no, no, no. Just don't, you don't need to tell them every bit of detail that we have written out. That's too much. It's like, no, it was exactly the right amount. That is all the stuff that people ever ask about that they want to know. And I would just be like, oh, it's this great system and it kind of works like this and this. And I tell them some stuff about it. You were trying to be Johnny Cool, yeah. a little bit too cool. And, and the, the process is a little bit more earnest. Yeah. yeah. And it's like detailed and it's maybe a bit boring because it goes on and it explains everything. But then we put in a line at the beginning of it that said, this is, this is going to take a little while to explain. So I'll just keep checking back in with you to make sure that you understand everything as we go and it's all okay. Is that all right? And everyone goes, yeah. And then you explain it in detail. Wow. That's interesting because like your experience is so different from the clients. Like your experience is I've done this 25 times and like I'm personally emotionally bored with it. But meanwhile, someone's coming off the street all full of anxiety and like a pile of cash they want to light on fire, but they're just making sure that all the bases are covered. Yeah, I hate running processes. I love having processes in the business. I personally emotionally find it so boring that I can't stand it. John, can you help us like get our hands on how we develop a sales script like that? What's a good resource for building our own uncomfortable, annoyingly long <laughs> closing script on the schedule? I can give you the framework. I mean, I can give you mine if you want. Am I willing to share that with you? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. The framework yeah. would be good. Or like word count and like what happens. Yeah. Uh, that would be... Um, I'd love to link up to that. So the overall framework is very straightforward and simple. You start off, you'd have like one or two minutes small talk, you know, where in the world are you right now, whatever. And then you get into, you know, thanks so much for this. I'll give you like a a short version of it. Thanks so much for booking the call today. Really appreciate your time. The point of today's call is for us to be able to figure out if you're a good fit to work with us. We only work with about 11% of the people who apply to work with us. And so we're going to have to go through, ask you a bunch of questions. It looks promising because you've already filled in the form. The numbers look good. We've already had a 15 minute call with you to check the numbers. That all seems promising, but we've still got some more stuff that we need to know in order to know if you'd be fit. Is that okay? Everybody says yes. They say, great. It's also a chance for you to ask us any questions if you like. At the end, if we think that we're a good fit to work together, that doesn't guarantee that you think so too. So there's a chance for you to ask questions as well. So we can do that at the end. Is that cool? And they say yes. That positions from the very beginning, two things. One, this is what the call is for. This is how it's going to work. You're not just able to come in and ask questions. We're going to, we're asking you stuff. In fact, we're in the position of authority because we don't work with just anybody. We're going to be the ones deciding. It makes them feel a little bit like, oh, I hope I get in. It's comforting in a way. It is. Yeah, Yeah. it's comforting. Like, if you're not a good fit, then we'll tell you no. And they can go like, oh, I don't have to have my defenses up. I don't have to pay for a call. They're going to pitch me on this stuff, you know. Any good agency should be a good leader too. And so you're demonstrating that you can lead the client. It sucks if you have to, you know, not everybody's in the mood to like have to mold what their agency does. That's that's annoying, Mm. you know? Yeah. So then the actual uh, majority of the call, you first of all ask them questions about where they are right now, current situation. So that what is whatever is relevant to you. Then you want to talk to them about their vision. Where do they want to get to? And then the issues. What is it that's the things that stand between them going from their current situation to the vision? What's getting in their way for that? At the end of that, if it seems like they're a good fit, you know, also ask any other questions you need to know to see if they're a good fit. At the end of that, if they are, and say it sounds like we're going to be a good fit to be able to help. You've told me this is your vision. You've told me these are your issues. We can help you to achieve this vision. We can help you to solve these issues. That's no problem. The next step would be, in our case, it's an audit. We do a paid audit as the first step of working together with somebody. Would you like me to explain how that works? 
And then they can say no if they don't want to hear it. Everybody says yes. And then you go ahead and explain it. Love it. Very cool. All right. So SOPs, the fourth one. And I didn't expect you to say that the SOPs allowed your team member to do something you're naturally good at better than you. <laughs> I didn't expect it to happen either. <laughs> but it turns out. Very cool. Yeah. Being smart and capable at something can be a disadvantage. I mean, like I was saying before with the delivery side of things, but yeah. Love it. All right. What's the number five one, John? Number five is tracking data. So um, I'm going to give the simplified version of this. I think it's definitely the one to start with is doing a monthly tracking spreadsheet and tracking each of the steps within your business all the way through from someone becoming a lead through to them signing up as a client through to them being successful. So for example, you know, number of leads that you got, number of sales calls that then got booked, number of people who then signed up as a client, or if you're doing a SaaS business, you know, number of website visitors, number of email subscribers, number of trials, number of people who after the trials stuck around. And you track those numbers every month. And every month you go in and you look at them and you go, are there any of these conversion rates that are just awful? There probably are like 95% chance that there are. And then you improve those. If you don't know what good looks like or what awful looks like, so you can't tell if it's good or awful, go and talk to a whole bunch of other people in your, in your market, go talk to consultants, what have you, find out what's a generally a good conversion rate. So kind of we do this with our clients, right? You know, so if someone comes to us and they've got certain size website traffic, we'll look at what can, how many of those people get onto their email list because that's an important part of what we do. And nearly everybody has got a terrible opt-in rate. And we know that a good opt-in rate for website traffic is 2 to 3%. Most people have got 0.5%. So it's like, okay, that would be easy to improve. You just track these numbers. You don't even have to commit to doing anything with it, but just track it every month. And then next step would be have a look at it every month. And then you'll be like, okay, I can see what we need to do. What most people find is they do not know what the steps are and what order they actually go in to go from doing stuff to money coming in. Like they don't have a clear vision. They don't have a clear understanding of well, what is the order that things happen in there. And it kind of forces you to, to improve that a little bit as well. But you don't have to get it right to begin with. Just have something, you know? Yeah. Something. You know, there's another version of this, which is like one of the first kind of like traction-y type exercise, which is cash flow mapping where it's like just a different visualization of the same thing, which is like, how does money materialize in your business? You like create a little visualization of the graph and then you put little like numbers relative to each process. So it could like similar process to what you're talking about. Like, well, we have leads like, you know, put their thing in here and then they buy something and then that goes off to accounting and then the delivery team delivers it and then this or whatever. And yeah, it kind of goes in a circle. And then one of the ideas is like, you kind of analyze the health of each part of that process. And then what my friend uh, Eamon Al-Abdullah does is he's like, now we want to increase the velocity. If we can get everything healthy, we just want to make it yeah. go faster. Yeah. And that's one of the best ways to grow a business. It's one of Jay Abraham's three pillars. You know, It's like we can get more clients, we can convert more of them, or we can get them to do it faster. So anyway, very similar uh, insight there. I like that. Sometimes I'm concerned that um, people track the wrong data or too much of it. Some of these like data kind of like they can start to consume a business because I think team members like love looking at data and they love finding it. And sometimes um, answering the first question, like why would we want to look at this data? Like is a worthwhile one. So say for example, 
all right, to get this data and to have it have high fidelity and to track it on a monthly basis, this project's going to take X amount of time. Now, let me just put in some values for you. Hypothetical values that we expect to find. Like, are you going to do anything with that data? Like, is it going to inform your action at all? Um, because otherwise, like, let's not spend a month finding it if you're not going to like change your behavior at all. Do you have any uh, take on that? So I don't think a lot of these things take a month to go find. I don't like, and if it's something that is actually, I mean, don't add stuff in if it's not, if it's not essential. It's like, what's the crucial, critical path through your business? Like how many, you, and it's, it's things that you'll already generally have an idea in. Like, you know, how many new people signed up for calls this month or how many yeah. new trials did we have or whatever, but just like start writing them down. The point of this thing is three things, right? Is did anything get much better? In which case, how come can we do more? Did anything get much worse? In which case, what broke? And are there any of these numbers that are miles from the benchmark? Because in which case, choose one of them, one at a time, and work on improving that. The ones that are way under benchmark are the ones where it'll be easiest to improve it, very likely. You know, the stuff, if you're currently converting something at 35%, an industry standard is 40%. It's like, you'll be able to make improvements. Maybe you'll be able to get to 50% at one point, but it's like, it's going to take a lot of work. But if you're currently at 4%, an industry standard is 40, then it's like, oh, almost anything else that you do would be better. <laughs> no, just implement whatever the general pra good, you know, good practice on that thing is, and it'll probably get way better. So those are the ones that are kind of easy to do. So those three things. And you will be like, I've seen so many people where something broke and they didn't know about it for three months. Like, why are they not making as much money? I met a client who had changed something in their process. And it took them two years before they, they thought that there was market changes and they thought that something had changed wow. and the product had moved on with competitors and they'd just broken something and they couldn't spot it because they didn't track all the, the data for it. Love it. It's a great one. I think the, uh, if we're going to stick with that mechanical metaphor of traction up front, like, like an engine, mm -hmm. it feels like now you can just, you can dump higher octane fuel into it at this point. Like, it feels to me like, you know, your aim of getting to six figures and beyond a month this year. How stressed out is your team going to be if your sales volume doubles next month? So Jason Long gave a talk at DCBKK for mapping out the whole business, like every part of it for the next kind of 12 months. And so it's not just how many leads you're getting in, but how many team members you need to do all of that kind of work and all kind of clever stuff. like that. So I built that. and. So we can see months in advance based on, if, okay, if we tweak this in the model, if we have this many leads come in, what's that mean in terms of when we're going to need to hire? So for me now, the key levers are, if we get this lead gem with a cold outreach, if that works well enough at scale and we can do that, then we basically have all of the levers to pull, or levers if you're American. And... Uh, <laughs> I caught myself saying that the other day. I was like, no, staying, come on. <laughs> um, and then what you have to do is look at, okay, if which, le which lever can I pull in which, which levers do I pull in which order? Okay, right. We're going to, we're going to increase this, but that's going to mean that we get more volume here. Well, I'm going to need then another person to do these calls. I'm going to need another person to do these audits, another person to handle those clients. So that's when we start hiring and it starts to become like a game. I'm a lot better at running a business that's doing a million a year than I was at running a business that was doing 200,000. 
And I think I'll be much better at running one that does 10 million a year because it's more of that game of manage it with the spreadsheets and organize it and kind of, you know, we'll see. I haven't done it yet, but like that's, I get that feeling. Very cool. John Ainsworth, thanks for joining us on the TMBA pod. We appreciate it. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Big shout out to John for stopping by the show. In fact, I'm flying his way. Uh, Hopefully we can talk more about this. I'm going to DCX London in just a few weeks by way of Paris. So I got to fold up this microphone stand and get packed up and get out of here. Thanks for listening to this show. Email me. What, which one of the five are you going to do? Or do you agree? Do you disagree? Which operational practice do you think can make the biggest impact for someone who hasn't yet done it? I'm really interested in this stuff. I'm taking notes. I'm working on it. I'm writing about it in the newsletter. If you haven't signed up for that yet, check it out, tropicalmba.com. That's it for this week. I got to run. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.